calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Realm presents Book Burners, Season 2, Episode 20. Four. Do you think it's working, Opie? Christina said. I wish you wouldn't call me that, Opie said. It's Opus, you know that. Everyone in the network knows that. I know, Christina said. That's because I like you. It was also because she liked teasing him, enjoyed toying with him a little bit. Opie made for a good target, Christina thought. She was that kind of person. Opie shook his head and looked out the window. Well, the sky looks right for what we've done, he said. But do you see anything else yet? Christina said. It's hard to say, Opie said. We did everything correctly, I'm sure of it. If you say so, then I believe you, she said. I have faith in you. Well, I have faith in myself she thought. Christina and Opie were camped out in a room on the second floor of a bed and breakfast in Middlecombe. It was a tidy little place, Christina thought of it as sparse, with two single beds against opposite walls and a small desk between them with a chair and a clock. On the desk was a book that Christina and Opie had brought with them. The thick ribbon with which they'd tied it shut now lay on the desk beside it. The briefcase that had held it was now on the floor next to the desk. They'd been told they couldn't open the book at all until they were ready to unleash what was inside it. The network was pretty sure they had the right book, more to the point that they'd made the right kind of book. When used correctly, it would be a conduit, a door that opened the way for magic into the world. But its effects, like the effects of all the books the network had made, or thought to make, had only been worked out on paper. The only thing that seemed clear was that once the book was open, the power within it would spread from its pages to engulf the area around it. How far? How much? That was what Christina and Opie were there to find out, but they didn't know what to expect. They had waited for the rest of the bed and breakfast guests to settle in for the night while they drank strong black tea from a carafe that the B&B's owner, Mrs. Headley, had been kind enough to give them when Opie explained that they were going to have to stay up late for work. They watched from their window as, one by one, the lights up and down the street switched off. 
By two in the morning, the street below them was the quietest they'd seen it. Every few minutes, a car glided down it, or someone walked by on the cobblestone sidewalk, their footsteps in the near silent night making them sound like tap dancers. This is as quiet as it's gonna get, Christina had said. Let's do it. Christina turned to the book on the desk and cast spells of protection for herself and Opie. Then she began the series of incantations she'd been practicing and gestured for Opie to sit in front of the book, positioning it just so on the desk. The instructions for the spell insisted that the top of the book faced due south. Opie had tried to protest, but Christina was having none of it. On a command from her, he opened it and waited. Seven hours later, they were still waiting. And at last got the sign they were looking for. A girl just flew by, Opie said. Christina ran to the window. Too late, Opie said. She's gone. See anyone else? No, but I don't think that means anything. How was she flying? Did she have wings? No, Opie said. She flew like you and I might swim through water, but if the water was lighter somehow. Was she attached to anything? Now that you mention it, yeah. Opie said. Long strings of something were reaching up to her from the ground. Connected? Christina said. Where did she go? I don't know, Opie said. But she looked, I don't know. You don't know how she looked? She had a weird face, Opie said. Like it almost wasn't a face. Did she seem happy about it? I don't know. That wasn't part of what we talked about, Christina thought. And right then, a small sliver of doubt slid into her convictions. Whatever magic they'd brought into the world, she wasn't sure she wanted to experience it herself, not until she knew more about what the effects would be. Was she being hypocritical? She didn't think so. She thought of the geniuses who had designed the atom bomb who had changed the world. They didn't stand around the bomb site to see what the effects of the blast would be. But they did use test subjects. She looked at Opie. I think I need to go outside. She said, I'll come with you, Opie said. You can't, she said. Someone has to stay with the book. Why? Because this is a test, right? Christina said. She was suddenly worried that she had tipped her hand, but nothing in Opie's expression changed, and she felt a little better. What if something starts to go wrong? You're the one who did the incantations, Opie said. Shouldn't you be here to fix them? I don't think we can fix the book by chanting at it. I think one of us just needs to be here to close it. Why can't it be you? Opie said, Opie, don't call me that. I'm sorry, Christina said. Are you worried about what's going on out there? Yeah, he said. Aha, Christina thought. Good. Let me tell you a secret, Christina said. I am too. I'm worried that maybe everything's working too fast, faster than we anticipated. What if the magic is stronger than we think? We need to know if that's true, or maybe the opposite, maybe it's not strong enough. Or maybe it's just not working right. Do you think that you understand this book or what we've done well enough to assess that? I'm not sure, Opie said. I think I am only a little more sure than you are, Christina said. Then we should go together, Opie argued. We've been over this, she said. Someone needs to stay with a book. Opie opened his mouth to talk again. She cut him off. If I see anything that's not going according to plan, she said, or if I think you're in any real danger, I'll come back for you. We'll close the book together, okay? I don't like this at all, Opie said. I don't either, Christina said. She was already putting on her jacket to head outside. 
She put a hand inside a pocket and discovered to her satisfaction that the key to their rented car was in it, just where she'd left it. I won't be long, she said. Call me to check in so I know you're all right, Opie said. Who knows what's going on out there? Christina almost felt bad for him that he cared that much. I can't, she said. Remember, our phones won't work now. And I need to tell the rest of the network if the experiment is working. She added that last part almost as an afterthought. Hoped Opie wouldn't take the time to think through what it meant. He didn't. Well, come back as soon as you've done that, okay? He said. Okay, Christina said. Are you all right? Opie hesitated, and for a moment, Christina thought he might suspect her of something. She had never asked after his well-being, not when they arrived in Middlecombe or cast the spells or while they were waiting to see its effects. But then he relaxed. He seemed more like he was just irritated that he didn't get to go out with her. Christina thanked whatever gods might be watching over them that Opie, good, dim-witted soul that he was, trusted her. Give me an hour, she added. All right, he said. She put her hand around the car key to keep it from clinking in her pocket or making any other sound that Opie might hear, and slipped out, headed downstairs to the front door fast. She had her hand on the front door of the house when a voice stopped her. Are you going out in this, it said. Christina recognized it as belonging to Mrs. Headley, who, when she wasn't doing anything else, seemed to sit in the same blue upholstered armchair, her feet up on a cushioned ottoman, facing the door. But the voice was different somehow. She turned. There was Mrs. Headley in the same place Christina had seen her the night before, when she and Opie had gone upstairs to wait out the townspeople and begin the ritual. The lady was still in the chair. Out in what, Christina said. This strange weather we're having, Mrs. Headley said. It's been like this all morning. She spoke as though through the haze of a sedative. It doesn't seem so bad to me, Christina said. I didn't say the weather was bad, Mrs. Headley said. I said it was strange. Okay, Christina said. I just don't know why you'd want to go out in it, Mrs. Headley said. I've never felt more at home. Which was when Christina noticed that Mrs. Headley's feet were missing. Her legs extended out from under her dress and ended, it looked like, right above her ankles. Her stockings bunched at the knobbed ends as though the amputation had been swift and ragged, and the fabric had closed itself around the end, made a tight bunch of nylon like scar tissue. Mrs. Headley, are you all right? Christina said. Mrs. Headley smiled. Never been better. Did you know that all these years I thought my neighbor Joe was not all that fond of me? It turns out it's been quite the opposite. He's had feelings for me for ages, but has been too shy to tell me. A silly bastard. Good thing it's not too late now. His wife and my husband are both long gone. We've still got plenty of years left. How did he tell you? Christina asked. What? Mrs. Headley said. Oh, no, he didn't. I just know it now. I was wondering if you did, too. Connections. Christina thought. Everyone connected to everyone else. One mind, just like we wanted. On the front two legs of the ottoman were Mrs. Headley's shoes. The shag carpet all around her wavered like grass in the wind. The wall behind her was moving, flowing, as if Christina were seeing it through water. The effect stopped somewhere between Mrs. Headley and her. 
On a hunch, Christina crouched down to look closer. Sure enough, at the border of where the rug was coming alive, new threads were beginning to rustle and move. Everything connected to everything else, she thought. A byproduct, but we'll take it. The spell was working. Not everywhere, not all at once, but it was spreading. It was just a question of how far, how fast. Christina opened the door to the street and walked outside. The cobblestones beneath her feet were solid, and to the right of her, all the way up the street, except for the pinkish-orange light flooding the air, it was just another quiet morning in Middlecombe. She looked left. There was a rip in the earth, a rip in the air, as if what Christina was seeing was just a canvas, and something was on the other side of it flowing in. No, something was flowing out of it, and the town around it was flowing in. Right around the tear, everything was melting together, and the force of it was spreading. She could see how the far side of the house where she was staying, where Mrs. Headley was sitting, was fading into her neighbor Joe's house, and the far side of that was a slow blur of color, a smear of paint. She wondered where Joe was in that house, or what had happened to him by now. Out in the street, Christina watched as some small tipping point was reached for the car nearest to the tear in the world, and the entire vehicle began to slide into it, blurring, stretching, collapsing as it did. Amazing, she said out loud to no one in particular. She wondered how strong her protection spell was, how close it might be to wearing off, whether she might be able to walk right up to the rip and peer in. What would she see? I don't like this, a small voice said behind her. It was a kid, a little boy, no more than seven, or it used to be. He must have been wearing a light hat and a coat to stay warm in the chill of the early morning. But it was hard to tell where he ended and his clothes began now. He was having trouble walking, and to look at what was left of his face, he was probably almost blind. I was running home from school, he said, but I can't run now. Christina gave the boy a good look. She'd devoted her life to magic and had seen things worse than this. A few of them were things she envied Liam for having forgotten. But this boy almost made something in her crack. Maybe everything doesn't want to be connected to everything else. Maybe turning magic loose in the world isn't such a great idea. She put it out of her mind. She had a mission, and this phase of it was almost over, as long as she could get out of town in one piece. It seemed that right now she still could, provided she hurried. Up the street from the boy, she could see the edge of the car she'd rented, as yet, unaffected. But from how quiet the town was, it looked like some people had already left. She knew that would soon be impossible. She fixed her eyes on the boy. He'll be all right, she said, and pulled her keys out of her pocket. She learned on her way out of town that the magic was even spottier than she had thought. She passed a block where the houses were swaying together as if they were made of something much more flexible than wood and stone. In front of one of them, a man appeared to have merged with his dog, and they were going for a walk, a big smile on their collective face. Three kids were learning to play a new kind of tag in the iridescent street, as they figured out they could now move in three dimensions. No touch on the ground, one was saying to the other as Christina passed. No going over the tops of buildings either. Then she reached several blocks where nothing was wrong. The houses lay in rows next to the road. The gardens in the front were starting to bloom. Someone had forgotten to get the mail out of the mailbox. At the end of the street was a sheet of light rising into the sky and exploding overhead. 
She turned left onto another street, and it was a straight shot out of town, the road rising to the edge of the ridge. She took it, drove the car to the top of the hill, then eased it onto the shoulder, got out, and looked down into the valley. She understood, then, what she had seen in the town. It was as though she and Obi had set off a small bomb in Middlecombe, and that bomb had thrown out sparks of magic that landed here, landed there, it turned to seeds, and began to grow. From the hillside, it appeared that Middlecombe was soil. Light and color rose in winding columns above the rooftops and spread branches that were connecting above to form a canopy. Everything in that town was connecting to everything else. This was only the beginning, Christina knew. In time, those columns would grow together to form a single thing that would transform all inside it, for good. Then it was unclear exactly what would happen. The details in the research the network had done were a little fuzzy. But it seemed that there would be some sort of explosion, a second gigantic release of energy and magic into the world. And the process she and Opie had set off on the second floor of a bed and breakfast in a small town in Ireland would start all over again, on a much larger scale. That next phase, when it was done, might transform the town. And this was just a test. If it worked, and right now it certainly looked like it was working, the network would cast another spell that could swallow a city. Maybe set off another explosion that might take in the whole country. Then, perhaps, the British Isles, then Europe. Until all the world was changed. For the better, Christina thought. When it's done, we will all be together all the time. She got out her phone and made a call. It's working, she said. I'll report again soon. She noticed then that the spreading magic was starting to draw a ragged loop around the town, from the edge of the fields to the water beyond the docks. The colors of the fields were oozing toward it like molasses. She had gotten out just in time. She wondered if anyone left in the town who wanted to leave would be able to in a little while and decided not to find out. She told herself it was because of the mission, not because a part of her was a little frightened by what they had done. You may not be on an elite team of investigators fighting the dangers of magic, but that doesn't mean you have to be defenseless when it comes to protecting your data online. Lucky for you, our partners at NordVPN know their way around the World Wide Web. VPN stands for Virtual Private Network, which creates a sort of encrypted tunnel while you're online, protecting your private data like bank details and passwords, so you can browse safely wherever you are in the world. In addition to providing you with a high level of security online, my favorite use of NordVPN is to virtually switch my location, so I can watch movies and shows that aren't currently available in my area. Plus, that way I can still access my favorite content when I'm traveling as well. I'm a fan of pretty much any British TV show, but they aren't always available in the US, so with NordVPN, I can virtually travel across the pond to enjoy my telly. NordVPN is also the fastest VPN in the world, and you can get all that speed, protection, and virtual locations for the price of just a coffee a month. To get the best discount off your NordVPN plan, go to nordvpn.com bookburners. Our link will also give you four extra months on the two-year plan. There's no risk with Nord's 30-day money-back guarantee. We can imagine many potential futures. Some serve as inspiration, others, warnings. Wondery offers one possibility of the future, 
in their new show, The Last City. The year is 2072, and the city of Pura stands as a miraculous green haven. Pura is a geoengineered paradise that protects fortunate residents from the global catastrophes of heat domes, fires, floods, and droughts. Demetria Lopez heads up Pura's public relations, tirelessly promoting the city's idyllic image. But when she stumbles upon a dark secret that, if exposed, would be the downfall of Pura's existence, she must decide who and what she's willing to protect. From Wondery, the makers of Academy and Dr. Death, The Last City stars actors Ray Seahorn, Jeannie Tirado, and Maury Sterling. Follow The Last City on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of The Last City early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDIC. Five. Do you think you can keep it down a little? Liam said. He was sitting behind Francis. You're right, I'm sorry, Francis said. I got a little excited. It's understandable, Asante said. Team three was on a plane over France, heading toward Ireland. Liam and Francis were in the window seats. Asante was sitting next to Francis, Sal next to Liam. Across the aisle from them sat Manchu and Grace. Brow furrowed, Grace was concentrating on good morning, midnight. Sal noticed that Manchu hadn't said a word since he boarded the plane. What were you talking about? Sal said. Francis turned around in her seat a little so she could talk to Sal. Some of the functions that the orb may yet have, it appears that in addition to detecting magic, it may have some ability to contain it or to protect people who are close by from it. Really? Sal said. If I'm understanding the manuscript right. What makes it hard to understand? It's complicated, Asante said. First, this particular section is written in several languages, and second, it's written in a very elliptical style. It's full of references to things we don't know about, and the instructions read like metaphors or euphemisms. So, it's a code, Sal said. That's what we think, Francis said. Asante nodded. At the very least, it was written for a very small audience. I think whoever the author is wrote it specifically so that strangers couldn't learn from it. It was written for people the author already knew, to refresh their memories about this. Or perhaps it's gibberish, Liam said. Francis looked annoyed, but Asante shrugged. Could be, but we've learned enough from working with it so far that I don't think so. So, uh, about this protection bit, Sal said. How close are you to being able to make that work? Not close, Francis said, but it's very exciting. It'll be even more exciting when it actually protects us, Liam said. Francis looked even more annoyed, and Sal could see that Asante picked up on it too. Those kinds of comments aren't as helpful as you think they are, Liam, Asante said. Her voice suddenly wasn't gentle, and Sal looked around at her team. Now Liam seemed hurt, Manchu's face hardened. Grace's left eye twitched. Sal could tell she'd heard and was pretending not to notice. Even Francis seemed a little embarrassed. We really are in trouble, Sal thought. Comments like that aren't very helpful either, Asante, Sal said. She tried to moderate her voice, inject a little sympathy. You're right, Asante said, and sounded contrite, but the team's mood didn't improve. 
It's just hard to listen to you talk like that, Liam said, when we have no idea what we're in for. Sal heard a tone in his voice that she'd heard before from him, back when they were doing, well, whatever it was they were doing with their relationship. He was about to say something that had been on his mind for a long time. He couldn't hold it in any longer. And it didn't matter much to him whether they were on a plane with other passengers right now. We're not subjects for your experiments, he said. We'd never said you were, Asante said. And yet I feel you've treated us exactly that way lately. I'm sorry, Asante said. You don't sound like you mean it, Liam said. You sound like you're just trying to get me to shut up. Asante arched an eyebrow. If you want the conversation to move in this direction, it can. It would help if you kept your voice down. To keep what we do a secret? It's interesting that you, of all people, should be worried about that, given your ambivalence about our state of mission. You know, to lock it all away. Which I presume you're used to believing. Sal glanced at Manchu, who was watching both Liam and Asante. His lips were pressed closed. I believe in what we're doing. I don't know why I have to keep saying that, Asante said with a little exasperation. She lowered her voice. And no, I'm not trying to keep it a secret. I'm trying to keep people from panicking. But here's the thing, Liam said. Maybe they should start. Why? Because the reports I've been picking up are not good. Manchu leaned forward into the aisle. What have you learned? He said. There's a fishing village called Middlecombe, Liam said, where something very, very strange seems to have happened. What is it? Francis said. It's hard to say because it's all on social media right now. Several reports of lights in the sky, uh, strange sounds like UFO stuff. But then here's a post from someone who claims they saw the town dancing, as in the buildings were dancing. Then there's a post from a fisherman who says he wouldn't go back into harbor because there were what he calls monsters in the water. He also says Middlecombe was lit up like fireworks. Of course, nobody believes these things. They think the witnesses are drunk or sick or hallucinating or something. The fisherman isn't sure he believes it himself. What about the official media, Asante said. Nothing yet, Liam said. So no real information, Manchu said. Except that all the posts are talking about it happening to the entire town, Liam said. Which is why you'll pardon me when I say that I resent being a labra in an experiment when we're going up against something so big. Please, let's not rehash this, Asante said. Why, Liam said. Because it'd be inconvenient for you if we did. Liam, Manchu said. Liam looked at Manchu in disbelief. You're siding with her? No, Manchu said. I just don't want us to discuss this here. Not at this moment. Then when, Liam said. When you're not making an ass of yourself in public, okay? Grace said. She didn't even look up from her book. No one else spoke, so Sal found her opening. We'll get through this and then talk, she said. Okay? How can you be so sure, Liam said. I'm not, Sal answered. But I'm planning on it, aren't you? Liam opened his mouth to speak and then stopped. He nodded. All right, he said. All right, for now. Sal didn't know if what he said worked on everyone else, but she knew Liam well enough to know he was lying. Six. Rory didn't quite know how long she'd hovered above the town. It felt so good up there she hadn't wanted to come down. The sensation of flying was like swimming, which she loved, but so much better, and she could breathe the whole time. Then there was the view. She'd been in an airplane twice and thought she'd seen the world from above, but being up here now revealed how small that plane's window had been. How much had been hidden from her? To the west, the county unfurled below her in an undulating carpet of farms and roads and towns until the land disappeared in a haze. 
To the east, the Iron Sea swelled to the horizon. And below, the town was a marvel. There were patches of it that were still unaffected and people who hadn't changed. She couldn't say why. They seemed to be worried. She could see them running from house to house, trying to find each other, getting inside or heading toward churches, places they thought would be safe. It was a shame, she thought, that they saw what was happening as such a threat. There was nothing to be worried about. She knew because the threads that grew up from the ground to wrap around her had only become more numerous, and they conveyed with each minute what another person was thinking. The town's secrets all bloomed in her brain, everyone's hopes and fears, their desires and doubts, all the things they wished they had done. Ryan Smith wished he'd gone to Dublin when he was younger instead of waiting. He still thought he might do it if he saved up enough. Royson, her friend from school, was going to go to America. John McCabe had gone to the doctor six months ago and had been given a tough diagnosis, cancer, that handed him a death sentence. But he hadn't told anyone, afraid too many people would treat him differently. He just wanted to live his life to the end. It turned out that a good half of Middlecombe, women and men alike, were attracted to each other. A network of desire made of passing glances, stolen stares, idle dreams. The town was awash with a gentle what-if lust. Rory would have thought, before this all happened, that these kind of revelations would tear the town apart. But instead, she, along with everyone else in Middlecombe who had come under the spell, was flooded with an overwhelming sense of acceptance. They were all together now. The tensions were sprung. The contradictions no longer needed to be resolved. They could just be. Everyone was welcome. The town was an open embrace, even to the people who were losing their minds, losing themselves to what was happening. And then, suddenly, Rory wanted to go home. If she had been relying on sight alone, it would have been impossible for her to find her house. Enormous, sinuous limbs like the stamens of flowers had sprouted from the line of roofs near where she lived, and they were stretching up to the sky, reaching for each other, quivering. The roads there had turned to rivers of color and light, but none of that was disorienting to her. She knew where her family was because she could feel them. She was tied to them by a golden thread, and she followed it back to them, descending through the forest of tendrils, through the roof below, and finally to the floor of the living room. It had all changed. The walls moved, pulsed, expanding and contracting as though she were inside an organ. A lung, maybe. And there was her family, growing, melting, fusing together. We're so happy to see you, they said. I'm so happy I came here. We know you want to go, the family said. I know, she said. Is it okay? Though she already knew the answer. The truth is that we all want to go, the family said. We all want to go, and we all want to stay all the time. We get in the car, and it always occurs to us that we could just keep driving. We get home and wonder how we could have ever thought about going anywhere else. We love you, and we never want to leave. We love you, and we all want to go. Does that make sense? It does, Rory said. It does. We understand you now, the family said. And I understand you, Rory said. Then join us, the family said. The room swelled with light, and all the family's hands reached out to her. Rory stepped into their embrace, and they took her in. The house flexed and grew. Soon they would be part of it, and it of them, and in just a little while, when the next burst of magic happened, they could go wherever they pleased.
There was a wobble in the air above the town, as if smoke were rising, though there was no fire. Christina could see now that there was a curtain, a shimmer across the road that led into town. A low moan came from somewhere in the direction of the ocean. Middlecombe was elsewhere now. The elsewhere was coming here. Christina smiled, satisfied. She got in her red car and headed north toward Dublin, toward the border with Northern Ireland and beyond that, Belfast. The network's tests were complete. It was time for the real thing. For Opie, the moan that Christina heard was a low rumble that made the floor ripple under his feet. He'd been hearing things all day, voices from downstairs, a high keening from somewhere else, but he hadn't seen enough to be more than a little nervous. The small window in the room faced the backyard, and apart from the sky, it was still as it was when the sun had come up, an overgrown tangle of vines near the house, a small garden near the edge of the lot. The book on the desk quivered as the rumble passed through the bed and breakfast. That was when Opie noticed that the floor under the desk was softening, buckling. The desk began to tilt, the book slid toward the floor. Opie, sitting on one of the beds, rushed forward and stopped it with his right hand, keeping it open with his left. His feet sank a little into the floor, and he let out a small scream when he thought he was going to go melting through it. He staggered backward onto the bed, the book on his chest still open. The desk curved and lurched like a wounded sea creature. The wall behind it peeled back, and a wave of light and color flooded the room. Now Opie really screamed. He jumped to the opposite wall, held on to the book with one hand, and by instinct put the other one over his face. But now he could see through his own hand. It was blurring, shifting. It had a thousand fingers. It didn't have any fingers. It was just a flipper of flesh, a piece of clay, changing in front of him, as if molded by busy, invisible hands. He screamed again and dropped the book, ran down the stairs. The book lay open on the floor. A red car heading north at great speed passed Team 3's van as it headed south. Whoa, Liam said. Someone's in a hurry. Are we almost there? Sal said. Just about, Liam said. They could see light in one of the valleys not far away, the kind of glow a town would throw off at night, though it wasn't night. How big did you say Middlecombe was? Asante said. Not big at all, Liam said. That's the kind of town we city people used to make fun of. You've been there? Sal said, no, just saying we made fun of places like it. He stopped himself, though it does look familiar. Get out of your head, Grace said. Her eyes were on the road. Good idea, Liam said. They drove another 20 minutes and were there on the top of the ridge. Grace got the first glance of the valley leading to the sea, pulled the car over, and stopped it on the road heading into town. They all got out. They could see Middlecombe, what was left of it, whatever it was becoming. Jesus, Liam said. You got that right, Sal said. Liam turned to Asante and Francis. Well, he said, do you have any big ideas for how to fix this? No, Asante said. Francis just shook her head. Sal looked at Manchu. There were tears in his eyes. It was his village all over again. We should have brought the book of protection we came across, Asante said. What? Grace said. Some of the research we've been doing, Francis answered. 
suggests that this book may or may not have the ability to shield the person using it from magical energy, though we haven't had a chance to try it out. The book itself seems a little fragile, maybe one use only. Still, Francis, Liam said. He sounded distraught, sad. You're kidding me, Grace said. You see this, and your first thought is that it's too bad we didn't bring a bigger spell? Her words were sharp enough to sting. It's too bad we didn't bring the orb after all. Then there'd be a lever to pull that would make this all better. Grace, stop, Asante said. A button to push, Grace said. Plenty of buttons. One of them must work. Okay, Liam said. You've made your point. I thought we were on the same side, Grace said. Though I guess I'm not really sure how many of you are on my side anymore. What are you implying, Asante said. Don't insult me by pretending you don't know. Asante raised a finger and pointed it at Grace. I know it doesn't look this way to you, but in everything I've done, ever since the hand destroyed my library, I have always been looking for a way to fix you. In your spare time, Grace said, when you have an hour to kill, that is not fair. Are you really going to argue about fairness with me? Grace said. Sal looked from Grace to Francis to Asante, then to Liam and Menchu. She could see the priest coming apart, see the rest of them tensing up, ready to get in the ring. It was obvious how angry Grace was. Sal could tell that even Asante could see it. Grace, Asante said, what can I say to you right now? It was time Sal decided to intervene. Nothing, she said. Don't say anything. She looked from one to the other, steadily. We have all been pushed around a lot, haven't we? We've all been trying to do the right thing, and the world is giving us a hell of a time in return. We don't know if anything we've done lately has done any good. And we've all gotten a little bent, some more than others, but all of us in our own ways. We all started out with normal lives, and we've all been knocked off course. It's why we're here, isn't it? Two years ago, I was just a cop, and if you told me then what I'd be doing now that I'd be here now, I would never have believed you. But here I am. I've been possessed by a demon while trying to save my brother. I've had it pried out of my head, and now my brother is whatever he is and nowhere to be found, and I'm fighting monsters in a war against magic for dominion of the world. Sal took a breath. I mean, what the fuck, right? Liam smiled. She glanced at Manchu, who looked proud of her. Nice speech, Grace said, but what are you saying? I don't know what we can do about whatever the hell is going on down there in the valley, but I bet there are people in there who need our help, which is what our mission is really for. We say we're here to stop magic, but we're really here to help people, to keep them safe. I say we try. Who's with me? Grace nodded. I am, she said. Why not? Grace's voice was smaller than usual and Sal caught the undercurrent of sadness in her voice. None of them had ever seen anything like what was happening in Middlecombe, and now they were about to run into it head first. And it crossed Sal's mind that maybe Grace was hoping just a little that this would be their last mission. Grace started down the hill. Let's go, Menchu said. The rest followed. You are listening to Book Burners, created and produced by Realm your portal to another world. Listen away. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. 
and it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. Book Burners is created by Max Gladstone and written by Max Gladstone, Margaret Dunlap, Amal El-Motar, Murr Lafferty, Andrea Phillips, and Brian Francis Slattery. Executive produced by Molly Barton and Julian Yap. Performed by XE Sands. Audio production by Amanda Rose Smith, with additional editing by Corey Barton. Original theme by Hashem Asadolahi, featuring Jody Redditch Ferber and mixed by Justin Morrell. Cover art by Annie Wu. Executive in charge for Realm, Mary Asadolahi. Find more shows like Book Burners by following Realm on Apple Podcasts. Spotify or at realm.fm.